just when I finish my to-do list. We need more chips, Mom. Honey, I need a lot of chicken. Something else comes up. That's when I use Instacart to help get everything we need from BJ's Wholesale Club, delivered right to our door in as fast as one hour. And then finally, I can relax. Mom, I think we're out of toilet paper. Time for another BJ's order. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Do you think all premium fuels are the same? Well, your engine doesn't. Shell V Power Nitro Plus helps keep your engine running like new because it's engineered to defend against four main engine threats. Gunk, wear, corrosion, and friction. So next time, choose Shell's most advanced fuel ever. It's fuel for thought. In engines that continuously use Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. You're all very welcome to the Can Projects podcast, where we love to talk about culture, arts, nature, and wellness. And I am your co-host, Shane McKay. And I'm the other co-host, Chris Rusneed. And we have a really, really exciting show today. Yeah, one that we've really been looking forward to a lot now um, is very, very special uh, to us to have uh, this guest on today, um, who's going to be speaking about the A. AIA, that's the Association on American Indian Affairs. I'm going to pull up the bio here anyway and just let tell you a little bit about Shannon O'Loughlin, who is a citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and she's the chief executive and an autonomy of the Association on American Indian Affairs. My apologies, uh, which is the longest serving non-profit in, in Indian country. And Shannon's yeah, about 100 years old now. They're getting close to 100 years. Yeah, it's great. Mm. Um, and Sorry, I didn't mean to cross you. Don't worry. Uh, what, what's new, Chris? <laughs> okay, so, uh, uh, so Shannon has been practicing law for more than 20 years and is a lecturer at John Hopkins University. She's a former chief of staff to the National Indian Gaming Commission, where she uh, assisted in the development and implementation of national policy throughout the agency and oversaw the agency's public affairs, technology, compliance and finance divisions. Uh, Shannon has also served Indian country in the private sectors uh, as an authority uh, on autonomy. I'll have to get the pronunciation on that right. Attorney. Yeah. Uh, leading a large national firm's uh, Indian law practice group that work to strengthen, maintain and protect Indian nation sovereignty, self-determination and culture. Shannon was appointed by Secretary of the Department of the Interior, Sally uh, Jewel, Jewel, uh, Jewel, uh, to the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act uh, Review Committee in 2013 and was appointed by uh, the then President uh, Barack Obama as the first uh, Native American to the Cultural Property Advisory Committee within the State Department in 2015. And she was then fired by the then President Mr. Trump in 2019. 
Shannon received yeah. a BA in Native American uh, to the Cultural Property Advisory Committee within the State Department in 2015. Sorry, I, I overread my line there, sorry. Shannon received a BA in American Indian Studies from California State University, Long Beach, and joint MA and JD degrees from the University of Arizona Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy. So a very active lady and a person we are absolutely delighted to welcome to the show. And we're going to bring her in right now. Hiya, Shannon. Hiya, Shannon. <laughs> How are you doing? Well, thank you. <laughs> You're very welcome. You're very welcome. I, I'm sorry, I kind of I, I, uh, I muddled my lines a wee bit there, but I get there in the end usually. Hmm. Hey, it, it's it it all works, um, and I'm just happy to be here. And thank you so much for uh, uh, being a part of this this podcast. I'm really excited about it, and and I hope I fit in a little bit with a name like Shannon O'Loughlin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That work well? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, my name is German origin, so you know, you fit in you fit in with Shane. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't there actually funny enough, uh, the Choctaw uh peoples, there's there is actually a bit of a history between uh, the Irish and the Choctaw peoples, isn't there? The, um mm-hmm. bombing, actually, yeah. Um there was there was actually a, the Choctaw nation sent some aid over to Ireland during the famine. Mm-hmm. And um, there was there was something a few years ago as well, wasn't there? Yeah, there was something recently. Oh. Yeah, they they celebrate it or they uh, commemorate it every year. I think mm. um, uh, uh, someone from Ireland gets together with our our chief um, in Oklahoma and and celebrate it. Uh, we also, I think, there's a, a memorial uh, statue um, commemorating it as well. Mm. Yeah. The, the, does the Irish representative bring over bring over the traditional bowl of shamrocks, or because <laughs> they're quite uh, famous for that one? Yeah, that that I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so Shannon, I'd love can you just uh, we we explained there uh, in your during your bio there a bit about the AAIA, but could could you, for people who haven't heard about the AAIA, could you tell us a bit about? Um, what you do and maybe what's been happening recently. Sure, sure. So the Association on American Indian Affairs is the oldest nonprofit uh, that's been uh, doing work um, with tribes and in Indian country. We've been around since 1922. So this is our 100th year anniversary this year. Um, The organization initially... Uh, was created out of a really strong need um, from progressive thinkers that believed that tribes were sovereign nations and that they had a right to maintain uh, their lands and resources that were protected by treaty and other federal law, and that they had the right to be self-determining um, and determine their own um, uh path forward as sovereign nations. Um, in, back in 1922, uh, U.S. federal Indian policy was based on genocide and assimilation practices, that uh, those practices were um, highlighted by Adolf Hitler and Mein Kampf, 
Um, they've been recognized as genocide by many of our, our Congress people and, and uh, members in government. It was a time when uh, it was fine to steal and kidnap children and take them to faraway boarding schools um, that were based in military teaching. They weren't allowed to speak their language uh, or practice culture or even go home and, and visit with their family. And they were punished. Um, I, I actually saw a film about that years ago and it really deeply affected me. Um, yes. I can't remember it's, the name. It's of still film. going on. It, it's oh, still yeah. going on today. Um, um, the the healing from it is still going on. The the survivors from the boarding school era uh, are still alive today, uh, and in Canada and in the U.S. and across the world, um, Indigenous peoples have been uh, their children have been taken away in an effort to assimilate um, and acculturate. Um, those people, but it was just um, institutions of of torture, um, basically. And so today, our uh, United States government is actually investigating the boarding school era in the United States. There's approximately 367, I believe, uh, boarding schools that we're aware of uh, that existed that were either um, uh, federal. Uh, institutions, or they were church institutions that were funded um, and permitted by the federal government. So that was happening back in in the early 1920s. Allotment was also a policy where the government would um, uh, section off um, Indian land that had been protected by treaty and other um, uh, federal laws uh, and divide them up into small parcels and give them to individual families in an effort to break up the communal holdings uh, and sovereignty and jurisdiction of those tribes uh, and to help instill that individualistic uh, 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 value um, versus living um, uh, with dependence on one another in, in community. Community, yeah. Now, yeah. um, and uh, so land was being taken away. About nine uh, million acres was taken as part of the allotment era. And um, our founders are are the people that stopped allotment with with federal legislation, and worked to fight against other policies uh, that came about in the '40s and '50s to relocate Indians off of their homelands. Um, and, and move them to cities um, to terminate tribes so that the United States had no federal responsibilities towards them. Um, and and what's, what's interesting about all of this, and sorry for talking, please. No, please. We're, 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 we're all here, Shannon. Okay. So what's interesting about all of this is that now I think I've lost my, my train of thought. Um, um, but. Native people have always been here and they've always been vocalizing what their rights have been and what they've they've been promised by the government. And even though there's, um, you know, our Native populations are often um, hold the worst statistics. So if you look at education, you look at disease um, and health and and employment, 
um, infrastructure and all of those things, we have all the worst statistics. Um, but what is so amazing about Indian country is that we've found ways to survive and be resilient and um, uh, continue, mm. uh, but not without uh, a little suffering and mm-hmm. pain, I guess, like most of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I find I, I kind of I found it um, <clears throat> kind of a bit shocking there during our research. I kind of I kind of knew this to a degree, but um, is it is, is it fair to say that fairy or, or little to none of the actual history of what happened is really being taught at the schools, or is that the right. case? Yeah, public schools. So, um, and and that's where I think this country truly fails. Um, and where we really create a lot of, uh, where we reinforce stereotypes and where we reinforce racism mm-hmm. is our failure in the public school system yeah. teaching about Native Americans and Native American history. All of the education on Native Americans kind of stops in 1900. So it stops at that time where we were looked at as the vanishing race. Um, where assimilation was the number one uh, policy, and it just kind of stops. And so many people in America think that Indians don't exist, or where they do, they just have casinos. (laughs) You know, and and so there's no real clue about the diversity of our 574 federally recognized, did I say that right? 574 federally recognized tribes and about 400 other tribal bands and entities that may be state recognized or not recognized by another sovereign at this point. Now, I have to say, I, I find it very inspiring that things have started to progress now and that there is acknowledgement starting to happen. But what I'm quite interested to know is like, well, but by how much, you know, and like it, we've similar stories in Ireland here. Like, uh, it, it's interestingly enough. We, we, yeah. We were a colonized people. <laughs> yeah. Um, interestingly enough, uh, it was just in the news that, uh, for the first time, uh, or the Irish, the native tongue, uh, Gaelge, has been recognised by the EU just literally just now on the 31st of December. And the application was originally put in in 2004. So, you know, these things do take time, they take a long time. But I'm really, really encouraged to actually see, I've actually been following the work of the AIA for several months now since we first reached out to you um, and I'm really really encouraged to see some of the initiatives that you have mm. have taken on and I, I'm also encouraged to see that it, it, mm. is there more recognition starting to happen now do you think or, or where are we like so um, I think nationally and in our current government administration there has been more attention and more government-to-government type of dialogue happening, um, responding to the requests from tribal governments um, over the last 50 years. I think we're finally being heard, and issues such as uh, violence against um, Indigenous women and girls uh, and missing and murdered Indigenous peoples issues Mm -hmm. Uh, and human trafficking, uh, as well as the uh, research and investigation into the American boarding school 
policies and how the federal government was involved in that. I think issues of repatriation of our stolen bodies, uh, graves and funerary items and and other sacred and and cultural patrimony. Um, Those issues are being looked at more seriously. Um, And there's even some legislation to help improve uh, repatriation of those stolen items that are being exported outside um, into other countries. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and of course, climate change, um, indigenous people and and tribal nations are um, uh, heavily affected uh, by climate change. And so hopefully this administration is is working really hard on that and we'll see some change in the next Mm. couple of years. There's actually one tribe in particular that's um, kind of on the coast, isn't there? Um, Which coast? And <laughs> yeah, that's it. I, I, the name will come to me later, and I'll just shout it out round, randomly. But um, they're they're basically all their land is pretty close to being eroded away. Like, uh, it, that's happening in Alaska. It's happening in Michigan and Minnesota. Oh. It's happening in Louisiana. It's happening on the <laughs> East Coast. Um, those issues are are happening in in many places around Indian Country. Uh, that have to do with um, uh, either impacting ocean ocean waters, especially in the the southeast and in the the Gulf of Mexico area and, and the tribal lands affected there. Um, uh, you know, but also in in lakes and streamlands and and we're seeing uh, uh, subsistence uh, uh, plants and animals that tribes, uh, use as part of their um, Hmm. health and ceremony um, is moving away. So we see the maple tree unable to grow in uh, where it used to grow. So now it's moving over the border into Canada. (laughs) And so, you know, uh, uh, maple sugaring and the dependence on um, sugar maple for for medicine and, and food is is also changing. So um, it's not just about impacting lands. It's also about, uh, you know, what um, indigenous peoples, um, uh, what their subsistence uh, depends on and also what their, their ceremony and religious life depends on. Yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 me personally, now I, I really think it's something that we've kind of covered here a bit before about how important it is to have indigenous people's voices at these things like COP twenty six or these different initiatives that are going on because it's kind of it's kind of it kind of seems like you know it's like there's they're not we're not we're not really being heard you know it's kind of like it's like water off a duck's back almost you know that the minute people start to talk about like look we're taking too much out of the ground this shouldn't be going on and it's like it's like they've just kind of tuned it out you know but i am encouraged to see that it does seem like a lot more people are kind of really starting to take note and i think indigenous peoples have so much to offer in this conversation as far as as our environment you know, and uh, something we like to talk about actually a lot is that, you know, our environment is not, it's not just uh, to do with pollution. Yeah, it's not yeah. just, it's not just the pollution. It's actually how we treat each other. And that means everybody. That doesn't, that, you know, so, um, 
there's 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 multiple multiple reasons that we, I, I think that this is this conversation we're having today is a really important conversation, and we need to really raise up people's voices about these issues because and and you know like our environment. I've said it before. It's like you know it's all, the, the ship is basically going down. Like to stand around complaining about things is really not going to make things any better. We really need like a practical path. To getting the to getting things fixed, and I think it's I think it starts with non exploitation. Let's cut out the exploitation, you know, in all forms. Where you know, um, so I, I saw there, Shannon. Um, you, you had uh, in November there. Is it? It's, it's an annual thing, I think. Is it night of November? Um, yeah. So um, it's National Native American Heritage Month. So every November. Um, everyone asks us what what it means to be a native person, <laughs> and and but we also have an annual repatriation conference. And I want to talk about repatriation, but I want to touch on what you were just talking about: uh, environmental or ecological knowledge. And and there's a an acronym that we often use: TEK, traditional ec- ecological knowledge, um, that many. Uh, indigenous peoples equate to their own scientific indigenous scientific method Mm. that in the United States, I think we're just now really getting a hold um, uh, uh, about where states are actually looking at how indigenous peoples care for the land, how they control wildfires. And, and how they deal with habitat and other um, knowledge um, because the relationships among, you know, the soil and, and plants and animals and the air and the water and us um, is a codependent relationship that indigenous peoples have been studying for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, and, 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 and living in harmony with the environment. Yeah. That's right. There's this great book I want to recommend uh, to you all and and your listeners. It's from an author who's also indigenous. Her name's Robin Kimmerer. Kimmerer. (laughs) And the book is titled Braiding Sweetgrass. And it's about those relationships that we have as individuals, as community, um, and the things that that grow and live around us yeah. and it's just a beautiful book she is um a scientist and a storyteller and it's it's a really uh, great book i recommend hmm. um, I'll, scratch, I'll scratch that one off my notes here then <laughs> do you have that one on there yeah yeah it was actually Good. recommended to me by a contact i have um in he, he's a uh, mohican um we 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 uh we met years ago at a historical reenactment event in Ireland and we just kind of hit it off and he recommends that book to me, you know. And uh, I'm in touch with a few Hayuka as well actually because I'm looking at doing a deep dive into clown culture in native indigenous peoples. And yes. uh, what was it they recommended black elk and loads of other stuff to me like. <laughs> Oh yeah, native humor I think is is the key to our health and happiness. Um, uh, you have to have ways to look at yourself and find the humor in it all. So um, in many of uh, ceremonial cultures and in 
by other means, um, there are ways in which the trickster or um, the clown or whomever gets mm. to kind of uh, mirror our uh, our frailties <laughs> so yeah. that we can be better people, right? And and, and improve, but also um, not take ourselves so seriously. Yeah, the sacred idiots. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's actually interesting because it's, it's something that... <clears throat> we consciously actually try and do like when we're coming on here and we don't like to come on like overly opinionated about things and we do like to touch on kind of like serious issues like our environment and stuff but we do like to keep the balance in there as well and, and have a bit of humor and because if it's all do doom and gloom it's kind of like we're, we're, we're you know we're not going to get too f very far like that you know so uh, i actually found it fascinating when chris started to tell me about that um the whole clowning culture is really interesting, actually. And to see kind of yeah. how it's been, uh, it's, 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 it's turned into something different in kind of West, Western culture is kind of interesting, actually. Hmm. Um, like we did actually have sacred clowns in, in kind of old Celtic religions and things like that as well. And like nearly every culture seems to have a, cu a cultural sacred clown. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of places are forgotten about, like. Yeah. And I, I and this is what I uh, is so great because I think a lot of indigenous cultures, <laughs> and I look at, at 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 your cultures as as that an indigenous mm. culture that was indigenous to a place, and a, a a land, and and you were meant to do something and and have relationships with that land and that territory, um, and that we all have so many uh, similarities, uh, cultural practices. Have so many similarities and 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 similar stories. It, it's so uh, beautiful. And then when you are able to, um, you know, many of these um, indigenous collectives that meet as part of uh, United Nations work and other international work, you know, come together and are able to share those stories. And it is it's so beautiful how much knowledge indigenous peoples hold. Um, and I don't know why our world has moved so far away from those values. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that we're starting to go back towards that now because it's kind of yeah. it's a case of survival now at this stage as yeah. far as the environment. I'd, I'd say the main reason we've moved away is greed, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, how, so how do we make it? I mean, there's this kind of uh, idea about, uh, you know, people will only change how they look at the world if you can somehow entice them or connect their interests hmm. to that change, right? And so, like, how do you connect with greedy people <laughs> who may not really be greedy, but may just need to make a living, and that's the values that has been passed down? How do you change that value system back to it's, something more traditional and land-based? Yeah, probably very slowly. <laughs> well it, it's it's actually funny enough it's something that came up that uh we, we we talked before about like the measure of success you know i think that has a lot to do with it you know like the measure of success like in in the the modern capitalist kind of model is you know make, make lots of money have a big house get a second car you know do better than the joneses and you know as opposed to like for me Success is when everybody benefits, not just when it's just one person or a small group of people that are ultimately actually kind of coveting resources 
Um, so I don't know. I think the way to move things forward is like exactly what we're doing now is to have these conversations and gain insights and see that there actually are there. We do have a lot of common ground. And, you know, so what can where that, that was Shannon, one of the really big reasons we, we, we'd like to have you on. We wanted you on here because um, I really do find it inspiring and it's a very interesting uh piece of history you know and and so to 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 go back to like you were talking about repatriation it was something i wanted to ask you about and and how is all of that kind of playing out now at the moment mm, well so I, I guess let let me start with a little context uh through uh colonization uh the um people that we laid to rest um, as part of um, either ceremonial uh, and ceremony and spiritual cultures or um, what have you, they've, they've been unearthed. Um, their burial belongings have been taken um, as uh, Native peoples were pushed out of their homes in their homelands. Um, their cultural objects uh, their cultural patrimony, their sacred objects were taken um, through violence and war, um, you know, uh, bloody clothing, um, scalps and other other um, symbols of, of that violence and, and, and those wars um, were also taken. And, and many of those items began uh, the antiquities market and trade, as well as museum collections all around the world. So Native American um, in the United States, uh, from what we know, um, there have been 2 million bodies in institutions in the United States. And uh, about... 80,000 of those bodies have been repatriated as of now in the United States. Internationally, we have no clue, um, but it's very difficult to get access um, and uh, learn about the collections in many of the international museums. But there's also this antiquities trade in the United States and in other countries that, that sells sacred objects, the same objects that are protected by US law. Um, many of the antiquity dealers here in the United States um, export things to other countries so that they can be sold um, because it's much more difficult for us to get a hold of them uh, when that happens. And of course, there's still a black market of, of bodies and other uh, very sensitive items yeah. for sale. There, there's this this weird. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure how to explain it, but uh, we've seen this in a lot of the older collectors and museum curators and others. Um, they look at these items as objects they can possess, yeah. um, almost like hoarders. That this is their stuff. It, into into um, their private collections that they you know show off to other collectors and use it like a status symbol, you know. Right, right. Or a um, trophy. It's, it's like a trophy. Yeah, it's disgusting. Like, yeah, yeah. And so, um, uh, there's a like I said, there's a, a federal law 
um, that requires uh, museums, and museums are defined broadly in the United States, basically any entity that's accepted any federal funding um, is considered a museum if they have Native American collections, and there's a process by which they must follow to um, consult with Native nations who are affiliated with those collections and to return them back. Um, and so we have a repatriation conference every year where we bring together academics, uh, museum folks, uh, tribal practitioners, uh, spiritual leaders, um, artists, and others uh, come together to talk about um, how we can uh, do this work better and how we can help persuade uh, the antiquity dealers and international museums as well um, to repatriate. It'd, pro it'd probably be an easier job if the, the, the actual real history was being taught in schools as well, I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah. And and um, we're seeing there was this great story that came out a couple of years ago where the daughter comes home from college and she just realizes, you know, an item that had always been hung up in their um, in their house, which was a special ceremonial robe from uh, tribes in Alaska. And um, she said, are we supposed to have that? What is that? And, and her college education and her questioning that uh, caused that family to get a hold of, of the affiliated tribe and return that oh, wow. um, special ceremonial object. So we see kind of one-off um, happening as people change their perspectives yeah. uh, about what Native culture means. And if you consider, th this is what's so hard sometimes to get across to people simply, but if you consider that you have been raised in a culture where um, you go to school, you can't learn about your own people, um, you go to a museum, you see your people's items behind glass with a little label, um, you see mascots, um, uh, using stereotypes to to uh, idealize your your people and 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 so many other things, um, what that must do to your own personal identity, self esteem, and health. And then if you look at that as a as a much broader um, uh, in a broader application, where we have you know. Uh, millions of, of Native people in the U.S. who are still continuing to suffer from intergenerational trauma that's been passed down from their family in living through the boarding school era, um, which um, uh, the numbers are 80% of, of Native children during that era went through boarding schools, um, mine included. My, my great-grandmother and, and that generation were, were in boarding schools. And, and what that's done to, to the generations that followed. Um, and repatriation is part of the process of healing, being able to return our culture um, and put our dead back in the ground. And to be acknowledged as well, isn't it? Just to be just acknowledged, yeah. like, look, this mm. happened, like, stop pretending like that this didn't happen, I think is so important. And I think mm. you hit on a great point there, Shannon, that for, uh, for, 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 the most recent generations, you know, it's so important, to, uh, even from a mental health point of view and a wellness point of view, to essentially 
uh, like there, there shouldn't be shame. It, there shouldn't be a shame attached to people's culture. Like it's just it, it, you know. And I, as you were as you were uh, speaking there, and you were talking about things being in museums and things labelled, and the first thing that came to my head is like, well, that's just propaganda. Do you know what I mean? To put these things on display and and to kind of we know, own these things. Yeah, you it's, know. it's really just, it's something. Yeah. You know. CAM Projects Culture, Arts, Nature and Wellness is an outreach project advocating that active engagement in positive and creative outlets is beneficial to our health and our environment. If you'd like to contact CAM Projects, you can email us at canprojects.info at gmail.com and the link to our website is in the description. You see it every day. The first dollar you earned from your first customer. Now it hangs on your wall at headquarters. A reminder of where you started and the promise of what's still to come. In part because you rely on Sandy Spring Bank to help you make the right choices on real estate and equipment loans, treasury management, and commercial services. We believe real banking is a conversation. Let's talk about your business. Visit sandyspringbank.com slash business. Credit products offered by Sandy Spring Bank. You can find the Can Projects podcast at Spreaker.com, Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a lot of the other usual spots. So... I, I did notice as well a, a lot in the news as well, and 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 I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, Shannon, because I know these things are the, 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 these are like um, this is like you said, this is part of the healing process is to talk about these things as much as as painful as it is. We need to help to shine a light on it, and that's how the healing process I, I think can, is is very important mm. to that. Um, but uh, I've lost my train of thought there now. Um, yeah, no, I I, I did see though. Um, it's in the news a lot again now with the boarding schools. There were like quite a lot of new mass graves found recently. Um, up, in, up in Canada, in Canada and, yeah. and, um, uh, for sure. Um, and throughout the United States, more people are speaking up about um, uh, what they know about the boarding schools where their families went. Um, and uh, so there is much more information about that, but that that's not information that's new, mm -hmm. right? So this is information that, that our uh, nations and communities have had. We've always known those graves have been there, but we've never uh, been able to have anyone really listen mm -hmm. um, uh, and do something about it. Uh, I think some of the first um, children's, repatriations from boarding school has been from the what's now army property in Pennsylvania. Um, it was once called the Carlisle Indian Industrial Boarding School. Um, it's uh, the graves are currently on federal land and the army has been slowly uh, repatriating um, children back to some Tribes. Um, and part of the problem with the army is that it won't follow federal law. It won't follow its own federal law. Um, and 
repatriate the children back to their tribes. So they're requiring a lot of, of uh, proof of lineal descendancy that somehow I know the name of that child. I know um, not just what tribe that child came from, but who their relatives were. And there must be a living descendant in order to repatriate that child back. And, and as, as we know, um, um, that's, that's not easy to do. No, for a lot of people, for a lot of them, it would probably be nearly impossible because it's not like there's a list for who's there. There's no, you know, they're on they're unmarked, undocumented graves. Like, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. We, it's, it's it's funny enough. Now we, we won't get into it too much, but there, 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 there's been similar stuff here in Ireland uh, recently that hit the news as well mm. with un, unmarked graves. Uh, but that's related more to the church, um, kind of um, we'll go back to post-colonial kind of stuff, Chris. Yeah, the Magdalene Laundries, it was where uh, unwed mothers were sent with their babies and uh, to, a lot of them were sold off for um, adoptions or for medical experiments or various other things. And uh, they found mass unmarked graves in the sewage systems of the convents. Yeah. Filled with filled with babies. Yeah. Yeah. What is wrong with with us? I know and, it's, and, it's, it's unbelievable. It's and 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 you know it's kind of like again it was like I knew I knew that this as a, this could come up as a bit of a topic and I was like look if it comes up we'll talk about it a little bit because hmm. as you said I'd rather talk about it than than not talk about it and it is it is a part of the healing process but um to kind of to kind of move forward now a little bit. And to look at some of the the, the 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 cultural restoration that's been happening, I'm very very encouraged by that. And the um the the, the uh, indigenous fashion show, I have to say, really really brought many many smiles yeah. to my face. And did, did, was is that something, Shannon? Did you did you follow that much, or did you did 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 you um have any input on that or anything or? So that was on our uh, Red Hoop Talk uh, video podcast that, that we have. Mm. And our public affairs and outreach coordinator, um, Kim Smith, is, is from the Eastern Band of, of Cherokee Indians. And she was talking about a story from her nation. Um, and they do an annual fashion show um, where um, uh People from that nation, you know, make their own clothing and designs, and then their people put on a, a, a show about it and, and to help um, kind of reinvigorate um, uh, uh, their culture. And, and some some of them have have made beautiful uh, fabrics with the Cherokee syllabary on it. Um, and, and other types of things. So, so those kind of efforts aren't just happening at the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, um, but we're seeing it, you know, of course, across Indian country, um, uh, along with fashion. We've got some wonderful fashion designers. It's brilliant. Um, it's, I really well, found it so inspiring. It was really beautiful. Now, uh, just because, like, I've kind of got, I've got my own kind of issues with, like, like we talked, we're not, we haven't covered it yet, but like fast fashion and things like that is so bad for the environment. And to see this kind of a project where, on it works on so many levels. Like you're talking about, like mental health or mental wellness, and uh, and and to break away the shame and to actually get a sense of kind of, I, I don't think pride is the right word, but it just is, it, 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 to take on ownership over again of the culture and 
to reinvigorate it, 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 just on so many levels, I just found it beautiful, you know, and a very practical use of time as far as how to further the, the efforts, you know, because um, like I said, like just complaining about things is not going to get us anywhere. we got to actually do practical kind of positive yeah. stuff. Well, thanks. We've seen a great resurgence in, in, in language as well. I, I, I love to tell the story. Um, uh, I was able to visit uh, the Chittimacha tribe, which is in Louisiana, and they're in this very um, kind of isolated area that's surrounded by marshland. And their last um, speaker, native speaker of their language, passed in the 1940s. And after that, there were just, uh, you know, a few words here and there, um, a few kind of continuing cultural practices. But in the, I think in the 80s, um, the Smithsonian, um, back in the early part of, of the century, had done these wax cylinder recordings all over Indian country of, of languages and songs and what have you. And sent them back to the tribes, basically repatriated wow. that intellectual property. Um, and the Chittimacha tribe was able to get um, some funding from their economic development, as well as from Rosetta Stone, which is a, a language. Uh, the language staging company, yeah. And were able to piece back their language word by word. And so when I visited that tribal nation, I went into their tribal schools where kindergartners and up were speaking Chittimacha. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Just yeah. freaking incredible yeah. that they were able to, to uh, rebuild that through efforts of their entire community um, to come together and bring words back, bring practices back, and retell the story of who they, they were and take control of it, right? Yeah. Um, and put it in their own schools um, uh, with their people. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And that's why yeah. I, I am, I, I do feel kind of encouraged, but I'm I'm under no illusion that there's still quite a lot of work to do because there's quite a lot of kind of pol po polarized kind of opinions out there. And I think just trying to get to a point where we can all just actually, we, we, we like to talk about this thing about open dialogue, you know, where it's like, look, it's okay if we don't agree about everything. That's fine. But can we just at least respect each other and talk to each other and and listen to different ideas? And if we don't agree, that's fine. But just be open to the fact that you know what your 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 way to think about it is not the only way. And it seems like that 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 other side of the of 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 what I'm talking about is has kind of gained a lot of momentum. There's a lot of kind of kind of fanatic kind of behavior going on in the world as as you know it's kind of obvious to anyone without without mentioning any names or specific uh specific things but um oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah oh yeah and, and it's but and it's everywhere right uh um it's even in our indigenous communities and it's even in our you know we um, uh, people that are oppressed tend to oppress themselves <laughs> yeah. for some reason. Mm. You know, but eventually you start to believe what you're being told. If exactly. you're told the same thing over and over again, eventually you start to believe it and then live up to it. And exactly. it's a hard, it's a hard crawl back from that. Like, you know? yeah. 
and we have we have tribes because of gaming. Uh, so let, let me talk just a little bit about um, Indian gaming. Yeah, please. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about that. Um, there's really a handful of tribes, like four, that are making huge bank from gaming enterprise. Um, uh, not every tribe has gaming, uh, nor can every tribe have gaming um, it's dependent on their land base and the status of their land base and a lot of other federal and state uh, regulatory interference of whether tribes can, can conduct gaming. And when they do conduct gaming, um, let me tell you, it's the most regulated form of gaming in the world. And all profit made from those gaming enterprises has to go into uh, tribal governance and to help support state and other infrastructure um, around the gaming. So it provides tremendous amount of jobs in the areas, um, not just with tribes, but in external communities as well. Yeah, economic so, stimulus kind of. Right. It provides money to the states. Um, and for tribal governance so that the federal government doesn't have to um, pay um, for the use of, of tribal lands and other resources. So um, it's highly regulated. And uh, most of the time there are good job creation programs, but there's not a bunch of rich um, <laughs> you know that that's not who we are. I wish. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, I was getting a check every month, but uh, that's that's not the case. Um, so, um, and, and Shannon, oh, sorry to cut across you, but is there? A, yeah. I take it that from what you're saying, there, there, there's probably a perception out there that it's 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 you know, like you say that you know, or just check that you're rolling in it because of this gaming thing. It's so mm -hmm. is is there is that kind of a common perception and stereotype? Yeah, it is. And, and we even see in philanthropy in the 80s when um, gaming starts increasing in Indian country, uh, philanthropy started to decrease in Indian country, hmm. even though the amount of tribes who actually have gaming and um, uh, are, are benefiting. So um, just like everything, it, it's dependent on location. And I know I was telling this gaming story because I had a point and now I forgot what my point was. It's okay. <laughs> um, I don't know. That happens to us a lot. <laughs> we'll get back to it. Yeah, um, um, but, but gaming has been uh, really important to many tribes to provide uh, resources because the, the, the federal government does not. And um, in, in case there's any um, question about that, um, tribes are not considered a minority or racial group by our federal government. They're considered political groups. So um, <laughs> tribes are separate sovereign political entities with government to government relationship with the United States. So that would kind of cut, cut down on access to, um, say, like the medical system or because the state would declare that they have no need to help. Like, well, if the state is getting funding through the federal government, then they mm. have an obligation to um use that on the citizens in that state 
Um, tribes are tribes are kind of ha- tribal members have dual citizenship. I'm a citizen of of my nation, the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, but I'm also the citizen of the state that I live in, which is is currently Maryland or the land of the Piscataway peoples um, uh, here in Maryland, um, and also a you know a, a national citizen of the United States. So um, uh, that political relationship kind of determines uh, the rights of tribes. So that's different than other minority rights um, uh, or uh, dealing with discrimination or other things. It's based in federal law and treaties um, uh, and was developed because the United States was taking land and resources. And in return, it was recognizing tribes, your separate sovereign nations. We recognize that as your territory. We will provide you health care. We will protect you against our bad men. Um, and um, uh, we'll provide education, oftentimes health care, education, and those kind of of services were included in in treaties, also rights to continue to hunt and gather in your usual accustomed and accustomed places, whether or not it was in your territory. So there's all these rights based in treaty um, that are supposed to be upheld through that government to government relationship. So it's not, um, not some kind of special interest or special line item. Um, in our government's budget, it should be based on the GDP of this country. The strength of this country, the United States, is dependent on that history and those treaties with, with Indian nations. Mm. Yeah, it's quite complicated, really, isn't it? It's like, yeah. Oh, it's, it's t- so there's a, it, Indian law is its own body of law. So even though you may be a lawyer and understand property law and criminal law and and, uh, civil regulations and environmental law, um, when it's in Indian country, it looks completely different. In fact, it looks almost, um, it lacks common sense most of the time. It's very duplicitous. Uh, And so what ends up happening in Indian country, depending on who controls the the purse strings and who controls um, uh, the game controllers in our government? Um, if they are um, uh, if they support tribal sovereignty, then uh, much of the the case law and other laws um, they can use to support that sovereignty. But then there's also case law and laws that denigrate. Um, tribal sovereignty and, and self-determination as well. So, um, it, like I said, it's schizophrenic, it's duplicitous, it's, and, and it's extremely complicated. So it must, it must be um, quite, quite, but, kind of, quite a challenge then to actually kind of progress things then. Uh, and I, I, it's something I'm kind of interested in, like how does that fit together? So as far as I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, inspired by the fact that the way um, the AAIA is kind of representing all these different tribes and like is there is there like a point where you kind of everybody kind of started to work together more or like what way does that whole thing kind of fit together especially with it being so kind of complicated is it just like 
do things tend to kind of take a long time to kind of happen and to be decided on? It, it, it can be. And part of it is also um, whoever has the resources. So um, the tribes with more resources, often their voices get heard louder than others um, because they can pay um, uh, for attorneys, for lobbyists and others. And so a lot of what the Association on American Indian Affairs um, is working to do is making sure all the voices are heard. Kind of making um, a level playing field, like. Right, right. And, and, yeah. and, and especially on those issues that aren't driven by economics, uh, a lot of time and effort and energy and uh, tribal organization is spent on um, uh, supporting economic development and making sure basic necessities and um, uh, that governmental affairs work with the federal government is, is taking place and is taking place in a good way. A lot of time and money isn't spent on language and culture and repatriation and um, uh, protecting sacred places. Uh, so we try to work in those areas where maybe it's not going to result in more jobs or or more money, but it's going to go towards that that healing and health and and cultural re revitalization that's so needed. Mm. Um, if we're if we're going to be you know, yeah, the sense of identity, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's really important, like in any society, like that, like we're dealing with real history, you know, mm. uh, like. You know, it's the cliche thing to say, but it is true. Like, otherwise, we're going to see the same mess happening again and again and again, yeah. you know. Forget the past and relive it in the future. <laughs> yeah. You know. But uh, I can't believe this is nearly an hour. I'd love, uh, let's keep talking for a bit anyway. But um, um, there's, a, there's, there's, I'm going to give you a couple of wee plugs anyway before I forget. I'm just going to pull up the website here so people can. Can, can get an, an eye on it and it's indian-affairs.org is uh and that's the association on american indian affairs i'll pull it up for you now that's it there and i highly recommend guys go and check that out if you're interested in any of this kind of stuff it's that that's a great resource to go and check out and i like i said i've been following uh the work that these guys have been doing and i'm hugely hugely inspired every time i see them put something out i'm just i'm really it really, it really, it really, it really raises yeah. my heart now. I have to say to see this kind of work being done, and as Shannon mentioned as well, they also have uh, a podcast. That's it. There, the Red Hoop Talk, Native News and Talk, which um, slipped into my podcast rotation as well. <laughs> Sorry, I can't hear you there. It slipped into my podcast rotation. Yeah, oh, it's great. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. I love it. It's really good. It's it's beautiful stuff, you know. And um, the other little plug I wanted to give, if I could just throw that up for a second, and hopefully I get this right, uh, is the native musical Distant Thunder, which is going to be, as far as I know, it's in March. Um, and Shannon, is that right? It's the first uh, Native American musical. Yeah, that 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 we're. Uh aware of it all. So some of our um, uh, council of advisors uh, were the, the writers, producers, and um, uh, actor um, Sean Corbett, who's, who's, who plays the, 
the main lead in in that musical um, uh, helped created and and produce the show. It's going to open in Oklahoma City's Lyric Theater, uh, and um, really excited about it. It was supposed to open uh, back in twenty twenty. Yeah. <laughs> that. Something happened there. Um, and so we're really excited about it. And it's basically about um, uh, uh, a tribe in which, you know, the one of the tribal members uh, leaves the reservation and, and goes and becomes a lawyer um, and then has to go back home and, you know, shit happens. And, and, uh, and it's all done in song. So if you're one of those who likes to go around life singing a little bit, um, it's nice to. I do actually. It annoys Shane when he's trying to do technical st sound stuff all the time. <laughs> no, but I'd like to hear that. <laughs> yeah. No, it's it, it's beautiful though. I saw um, a video clip of the rehearsals and some of the singing and and uh, I don't know what you call it, chanting or singing, but it was kind of a chant they had going on in a circle. It was absolutely beautiful stuff. I'd love to actually be able to see it in person, but I, I doubt that's going to happen anytime soon. But um, and again, I just love to see these like practical, positive kind of initiatives, you know, on, on cultural uh, restoration. It's it's really really encouraging. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sure, I sent, I sent you, uh, I sent Shane there an interesting thing about uh, the Lakota clown tradition doing um, a sustainability play, didn't they? Uh, you, oh, you, yeah, you did, that's right. Yeah, that, that yeah. was pretty good, yeah. Yeah, that was that was really interesting to see. That was kind of, um, it was in some, uh, it was in uh, State University, Winoa, I think. Um, yeah, it was just a really interesting one to was see. Was that the climate change one, was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That was that was great, like yeah, yeah. And we need more of this. No, not a yeah. talker. No, we need more. We need a lot more of this stuff. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna cut us off right, right, right away because I feel like we're just starting to, to, to kind of. But I, 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 I'm gonna leave the floor to you again, Shannon. After this question, I'm gonna ask you two like fairly standard, standard questions. But I, I gotta ask. I'd really love to know that. Like, so for the AAIA, what do you think has been a some of the biggest challenges and then be some of the biggest accomplishments. Challenges and accomplishments. Um, I think the biggest challenges have been to um, move philanthropy um, uh, to better support um, things that are needed in Indian country. A lot of times when you're trying to get funding from external sources, um, to support efforts at, at cultural revitalization. Um, it's often judged from a Western uh, point of view. Tell me how many people are served. Show me the direct change, the direct results, um, and, and very kind of quantitative uh, metrics of how um, you're achieving success in Indian country. And much of the work that we're doing is qualitative, right? It's it's how do we change uh, the quality of of our lives um, and help heal so that the next generation doesn't have the same uh, uh, issues to deal with, and those are really difficult to to quantify, um, but are the most 
beautiful stories in the world. And so it's it's taken a while to get philanthropy to understand um, how things work in Indian country, um, uh, absent them wanting to say, here, we'll just do this. This is what, you know, this Western ideology um, says we'll fix the program or we'll just give a bunch of backpacks or we'll just give a bunch of coats. Um, and that's not really uh, putting the resources where, where they're needed most. So, so part of it is just educating people on how to work in Indian country and um, how they can achieve success in supporting uh, efforts in Indian country. And of course, I think the biggest success has been um, in Indian education, um, Native people going to school and then going back home um, to help support um, and kind of translate um, Western ideas and, and uh, traditional cultures um, so that they both can be better understood um, within tribal cultures and, and outside tribal cultures. So I think those, those people that kind of serve as a translator, um, a cultural uh, translator, if you will, um, have been really helpful at achieving success in Indian country. Um, so education has been very important. We do undergraduate and graduate scholarships who are the oldest um, scholarship grantor for Native students. Uh, we've been doing it since the 1940s. Um, we've also are building programs for Native youth. We support Native youth summer camp programs, and we're also building a, a national uh, program that will house um, uh, a type of Native youth summer camp. Um, but I think our, our biggest successes has been to build a family of not just Native people, but non-Native people who support our vision of trying to create a world where diverse Native American cultures and values are lived, protected, and respected, right? Um, and through that journey, I think we see that there's many non-Native people who share the same values that Indigenous peoples do. Um, and can help su support us. So we're really looking on being uh, inclusive uh, and our uh, association uh, reflects, reflects that in our, our membership. Oh, that's wonderful. That's really great. And it, it really is encouraging. And, and, and we, probably will, we, probably, we probably will finish up now. And but I'd love to have you back, Shannon, or, or, or if there's anything that 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 we can do to help her um you know you're very welcome to give us a show anytime um we're really really encouraged by uh, the ongoing work that you're doing um but is is there anything you'd like you, you, that we haven't covered that you'd like to maybe touch on a little bit more before we do say goodbye well there there's really so much and so many things we can talk about i just encourage everyone to to go to our website if there's questions ask because I think some of, uh, you know, teaching about culture and, and diversity uh, is difficult, mostly because people are scared to ask. Um, we want to be the type of organization that people can ask their stupid questions of um, so that they can uh, 
Uh, so so maybe better, set up better educated. A special set up a special FAQ like the FASQ to frequently ask stupid questions. <laughs> that's that's a great idea. I like that. Can yeah. I use that? That's great. Oh yeah, that's that's an idea I was given to you. <laughs> you know, um, like the the FAQ on my on my website is a conversation between me and an imaginary person. Like, you know. And uh, one of the answers is, yes, I wanted to be an astronaut superhero. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my. But, uh, yeah, frequently asked stupid questions. You can have that. No other. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think there's, you know... I don't know. Is, that, is it is it is it too much of a generalization to say there aren't any super, super questions? But any kind of questions are good as long as they're respectful. I think. Oh yeah. Well, there is some stupid questions. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, when I was doing historical reenactment years ago, somebody asked me, "Did the Vikings use wood?" <laughs> Did you know that's that's a pretty stupid question. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything then. I'm going to sound stupid. <laughs> yeah. I think our, our biggest stupid question is always, um, I did my DNA and found that I'm, you know, 23% Native American or whatever they're doing. De- Where's my Indian check? Oh, um, my God. So, <laughs> idea that, that being Native American, somehow you get access to all these wonderful benefits. Hmm. And that is just some kind of weird fallacy that's been created. Every tribe has their own um, uh, enrollment process or or citizenship Mm. requirements. And each one of those tribes is sovereign. So each one of those tribes is is different and how it Mm. looks at its citizenship and and membership. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm still waiting for for my Indian check. It, it's never it's never come. It it, it doesn't exist. Um, uh, so so that's the biggest stupid question I, I think that we we have is is where's my Indian money? <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord! Oh, I won't you say too what? much about that. It sounds like the haggis hound. You know, uh, Scott. The Scottish have this joke to the playing tourists where they tell them the haggis are actually really animals that live up in the mountains. And can only run in a circle, and they breed special dogs called haggis hounds that have two legs shorter on their body, so they can run in circles really effectively. And blah blah blah. You should set up something like that. You, you know, you get the Indian check after you can do all these tasks, then, <laughs> and have them out like you know climbing up mountains with their teeth, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah. We need some kind of uh, club that uh, it, with. Uh, events and really hard kind of calisthenic stuff. We can. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the the Vikings and the the native people can get together and and, and figure out a good. Oh, thing. they did. <laughs> um, yeah, Leif Erikson was kind of found his way to uh, Newfoundland, wasn't it? And uh, traded with the with the natives until um, the natives booted them out because they wouldn't sell them their weapons or some other t- historical thing. <laughs> But, but there's also there's also stories. So um, uh, the Haudenosaunee or the the Iroquois who are in um, Canada and down in in New York State, there are some Senecas that are enormous. Like these guys are huge, hmm. and so there's always stories about you know that they must have been hanging out a lot with the Vikings back in the day yeah. um, because they seem bigger than anyone 
else in in the area. So, <laughs> so you know, so there was there was there was a there was a settlement for a while, and there was a certain amount of intermarriage as well as in, in some of the stories that we have. Yeah, well, when we get the when we get the history books in order, we probably. Probably yeah. get a better Once picture. Like, all out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, look, listen, Shannon, I'd really love you to come back to us at, at some stage. Um, you're an absolute uh, wonderful guest to have on, and mm. we really thank you very much for sharing all of that with us. And um, we look forward to sharing it with the audience as well. Thank you, Yakoki. Oh, thank <laughs> you, Grimogut. So mm. we shall say Slangapol and Grimila uh, Magut for now. Yeah, and uh, a million thank yous. Yeah, <laughs> or the other one I like is Cade Mila Slanche, which is a hundred thousand good healths. Mm. So I wish you all the best, Shannon, and um, thanks again so much. Thank you. Okay, bye 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 bye. And the Can Project's email is canprojects.info at gmail.com and you'll find a link to the Cam Project's website in the description. All the best. Mm-hmm.